And so I learned while researching this date that American wine is like American democracy. For most of our history, we were really bad at both. Both were disdained by Europeans, both were reserved for elites early in our nation's history, and both experienced a dramatic improvement in the 20th century. Before we order a bottle, do you have any suggestions? Uh, I'm sure I'll like anything you choose. Gee, Dr. Nair. Please, call me doctor. <laughs> anyway, I'm flattered you paid such close attention to my Match.com profile. I wish there was a way to combine my interest in wine with your interest in history, but there aren't any President Pars. Except, of course, for the Cleveland Tavern that's dubbed itself the Millard Fillmore Presidential Library. Oh, really? That's so funny. What kind of wine do you suppose they serve there? I know nothing about that. <laughs> that that's a joke because Fillmore was... Was a member of the Know Nothing Party. Yes, I, I know. That was cute. Anyway, shall we order? Yes, let's. Are you in the mood for a full-bodied white? I'm not sure, really. I'm sure it comes in a tiny glass, though. Coming to you from Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables, Presidential Sketch Comedy and History for People Who Can't Afford Hamilton. Today, a special episode. American Vintages, sketch comedy and discussion about presidents and wine. What you are about to hear in this podcast is a mashup. Partly sketch comedy in a radio comedy vein, and partially discussions about presidents and history and how that changes. The folks you'll be hearing are DB Comedy, a political sketch comedy company that's been working in Chicago since 2006, where actors, writers, producers, and directors, along with actual real-life historians and experts in all things presidential. Thanks for downloading. Hope you like it. Yes, they were. Um, actually, Virginia, uh, yeah, actually, Virginia, I, I, there is some decent wine that comes out of there. Um, there is some decent wine that comes out of some surprising states, including the Gruet bubble, Bubbly that I recommended, which is from New Mexico. And in fact, the vi first vineyards in, in New Mexico were uh, planted I, it was in the 1600s. Let me just double check this. 1629. Um, a Franciscan friar and a Capuchin monk um, started planting there. But um, yeah, I mean, there, there's some interesting wine from all over the country at this time. And I, I don't want to get too far afield, but when it comes to things like climate change, this is going to be important because when we're looking at uh, the tried and true places for growing wine, California, Washington, Oregon, where, you know, you get world-class wines very easily. Well, there's a lot of wildfires. 
going on right now. And, you know, I've been to places like Michigan, for example, where there are vineyards and, and they're working on it. Is the wine great? No, but I think we need to support it. We have secretly started recording a DB comedy episode in the middle of a wine discussion. Why, one might ask? Well, as it turns out, the voice that you heard that you may not have recognized DB comedy fans is my friend Lainey Peterson, who, as you can tell, is a wine lover par excellence. And <laughs> she and I were chatting back and forth and thought, you know, we do this podcast about presidents. And she said, you know, there are things about presidents and wines that intersect. So we decided why not? We needed to break up a little bit of our monotony. So here we are doing a podcast about the presidents and wines. And Lainey, would you like to formally introduce yourself to our fans? Sure. My name is Lainey Peterson. I am a writer and broadcaster and content creator here in Chicago. Um, I have in the past I had a successful tea blog and a tea podcast. I have done, I'm currently part of Hardlands Media 99 Perspectives, which is an independent media organization here in Chicago. I am also in the process of starting a, a radio station, new radio station here in Chicago called World Perspectives Radio Chicago, which will be featuring um, episodes of DB Comedy and, and the Electables. And we are so looking forward to, to bringing that to our to our listeners we're really excited i have previously hosted a, um, a a wine podcast which is currently on hiatus but what will be happening on world perspectives radio chicago is a weekly chicago wine report um, there will be a very chicago local hyper local focus on the wine scene so um i'm really excited to be here though because i love the electables i love what db comedy does and uh, i adore joe so here Aww. we are thanks oh, yeah. And so joining us is one of our regular presidentialists, someone who used to be in the neighborhood, and we were just talking about various wine, uh, wine bars and wine stores here in Chicago. Hello, all. Uh, Chelsea <laughs> Denault, American historian. Dr. Chelsea Denault. That's we right. Real specific. Doctor. But not that kind of doctor. <laughs> Again, I can't save your life, but I can tell you that everything around you is a social construction. <laughs> and there's the rest of us here at DB Comedy. Joe. Paul. Sylvia. Sandy. Tommy. And Gina. So when I brought the idea to uh, the DB Comedy gang and kind of going, wouldn't it be kind of cool to have sort of a crossover episode, which is kind of what that is, and the idea being wine, somebody, I don't remember exactly who, but somebody kind of asked a question that I think would be a fun way to get Laney and Chelsea and the rest of us started, which is, wine's kind of highfalutin for the United States. Why would we concentrate on wine as opposed to say beer or whiskey or well, even tea? <laughs> my, de my degree is in church history, not American history. Um, so if, if Chelsea wants to lead, I, I have an, I have an opinion, but I'd love to hear what she has to say. Yeah. So it's, you know, one of the, I, I also asked myself this question, right. As a historian who formally dabbled in food history um, before realizing that that was not what the direction that I wanted to take. Um, and, 
yeah, I agree with you, Joe, that I, as far as what we have previously discussed in DB comedy, um, it would have been more appropriate maybe to look at beer or whiskey, right? Because we often like to talk about um, broader cultural things happening in the United States and not necessarily high class or high culture. Um, but I do think that wine and the presidency dovetail really nicely for a number of reasons. One of them being that the president is supposed to reflect a kind of high culture for American society. And two, wine plays such an important role in American diplomacy, right? Wine is one of those beverages that um, is loved and admired and drunk uh, across many different countries and cultures and is in some way a kind of common language between the United States and other nations. I think it's a really nice window into uh, American history. So what you're saying, Chelsea, is that if William Jennings Bryan, Bryan when he was Secretary of State, had served actual wine instead of grape juice at diplomatic functions, then maybe World <laughs> War II wouldn't have happened. Maybe he would have got elected to something. burn. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, votes for booze. I, I, I believe that's what killed Poe. I think maybe if I could jump in, I feel like to answer Joe kind of your question about why not cider or whiskey or beer, because the early presidents, and I would probably say most of the founding fathers, both want to be independent from Europe and want to be European aristocrats, just not over there. <laughs> I think the presidency relates to that too, where it's like, we don't want a king except for the one we choose, who will be essentially a king. Well, Penny, what's your... I mean, our early presidents did come from Virginia, just saying. So I think there could be something to your theory, Tommy. What's well, your view on, on why we were focusing on wine, Lainey? You said you had a theory. Well, I, I think there are a couple of things. I mean, one thing is um, that technically the U.S. was supposed to represent religious freedom. Now, it certainly rep represented also colonialism and that serious amount of baggage. But you'll notice that there were vineyards being started by, well, Catholic clergy. Well, they would need that for religious, you know, to be religiously observant. The, you know, the vineyards were being tended, wine was being made for for that purpose, and of course that can you know, that established wine culture. I think that there, there, there there's that. I think that um, we know that Thomas Jefferson was fond of wine and was a wine collector. And there's an interesting story about Bill Coke, one of the uh, part of the infamous Coke family, uh, who actually bought one of Thomas Jefferson's bottles of wine at auction from six figures, I want to say. Um, just so he could have it. He wasn't going to drink it because he was pretty, pretty bad. By all reports, yeah. Wine. He was not a good winemaker yeah. in any way. Are there We're any... talking about Thomas Jefferson and not the Koch brother here, just to clarify. Yeah, we'll just well, in another we podcast. We can have one. another <laughs> discussion about that. Thomas Jefferson wanted to be a European potentate ruling over a nation of farm owners. It's kind of strange. So, who was his role worked, model right? when it came to drinking wine? Chelsea, you love Thomas Jefferson so much. Oh, he <laughs> is, oh, without a doubt, one of my favorite humans ever to have grace. <laughs> you know, I, I know <laughs> that Thomas Jefferson um, 
loved France, loved the French and loved everything about France. And so it translates very well that when he uh, became president, he endeavored to create a little slice of France uh, in, in his White House. And so I don't know that there is one particular person that I would point to, but I, I'm sure that uh, if it was French, he would drink it. Well, we're moving on. Here's the bottle of Bordeaux you wanted, Thomas. Shall I decant it before John Quincy arrives for dinner? Oh, please do. Ah, a souvenir of that sun-kissed region of France. What's your favorite memory of Bordeaux, Sally? Oh, I don't know. Maybe having to sweep the horse manure out of your path as you toured the vineyards. <laughs> Which you did superbly. I barely needed a shoe shine afterwards. Tonight. We proved to young Adams that an American president can entertain as grandly as any European potentate. Long as someone else is buying. <laughs> I'm surprised he accepted your invitation after how you treated his parents. <laughs> All I said was Abigail is twice the man John is. It's not my fault if they took that personally. <laughs> Who can resist an invitation to spend the night with Thomas Jefferson? Not me. Whenever I try, you threaten to sell my mother. <laughs> you know I'd never do that. At her age, who'd buy her? Quincy will bring some libation he acquired during his diplomatic postings, uh, like a sweet Liebfremlich from the Black Forests of Prussia, or, or maybe a hearty Madeira from the tropic islands off the coast of Portugal. Or a weak tea from the drawing rooms of Braintree, Massachusetts. You might be overestimating John Quincy's fondness for spirits, Thomas. Hi, Sally. John is a most enthused drinker of punch. And Abigail is a much enthused puncher of drunks. She'd caution John Quincy to sobriety. So what if she does? John Quincy is an ambitious young fellow, and no man succeeds by heeding a woman's advice. Oh, of all the... Oh, your guest is here, Mr. Jefferson. Hey, Jefferson. Is this where dinner is served? I never toured this joint before you kicked mother and father out of it. Why, if it isn't Massachusetts new senator. Speaking of John and Abigail, did you write to say your father's friendly enemy has invited you to dinner in the executive mansion? I did. Father sounded pleased. Mother called me a disgrace to the family. But she says that in all her letters. Oh, dear Abigail, constant as the weather in the Arctic. So what's in the jug? A delightful beverage I discovered in Prussia. Marvelous. Uh, we shall have two aperitifs then. Pour us each a red, Sally. John Quincy, I promise that this shall be the finest Bordeaux you have ever had. I don't doubt it. Thank you, miss. Of course, Mr. Adams. So how are your parents getting along since they left Washington? Oh, famously. But they're bickering with everybody else. <laughs> anyway. To your health, Jefferson. Ah, to your health, Adams. Mm. Oh, magnificent. Oh, I'm, I'm, I taste notes of black currant and plum with a nice lift of acidity in it. A refreshing hint of earthiness. What do you taste? Um, wine. <laughs> Oh, you New Englanders. <laughs> Always so reserved. But I am sure a sip inspires something even in your flinty soul. 
Well, I guess it inspires gratitude that you'd open such a pricey bottle from your personal collection for me. <laughs> personal collection? <laughs> Why, I will have you know that Sally fetched this bottle from the executive mansion cellar. So the federal government is buying expensive wine for you, but a standing army would be a waste of money? Oh, Mr. Adams, you're just like your father. You don't understand Mr. Jefferson's Southern sense of humor. He's no hypocrite. He's going to pay back the government for every bottle of wine he drinks while he's president. (laughs) Of course I am. (laughs) Just like Sally says. And, And you know she'd never make a fool out of me, would she? Of course not. Say, I think a glass of uh, sauerkraut would be a nice chaser to this Bordeaux. Two glasses, miss? You sure we shouldn't save it for dessert? If it's German, I'm sure it's rather sweet. Oh, no, not at all. To your health. Ah, to your health. Um... Goodness, Mr. Jefferson, you're turning an awful pretty shade of green. Oh, it's envy that John Quincy should have so many opportunities to enjoy this unique concoction. Isn't it remarkable? It's the excess brining liquid from fermented cabbage. They say it cures many ailments. Well, I suspect it would be a great purgative. I sent mother a bottle, and she said, Jefferson should have one, too. I'm so fortunate to be Abigail Adams' son. She taught me to appreciate flavors like sourness and bitterness. Well, she and your father are well matched. Indeed. Speaking of my mother, Abigail Adams, uh, might I inspect myself in a lavatory mirror? She's visiting next week, and I must be sure the Bordeaux hasn't stained my teeth. Down the hall, on your right. (laughs) Ah! Damn it, Sally. Do you know how much money it'll take to repay the government for all that wine in the cellar? Oh, dear. Are you going to have to cut my salary? After you leave office... Offer to donate all of your presidential papers to Congress. Maybe they'll be willing to swap. Oh, like anyone in this cursed country will heed my wisdom. (laughs) Sally, I preside over a nation of Philistines like Adams, whose collective palates have been ruined by years of drinking whiskey, beer, and cider. Thomas, they drink whiskey, beer, and cider because most American wine is horrible, and they can't afford to buy wine from Europe. But can no region of this blasted backwater produce a vintage that doesn't taste like swamp water? Well, you'll have to double or triple the size of the United States before you find one, I wager. Then so be it. Napoleon needs money. Maybe I can buy New Orleans from him and we can keep going westward. I have heard there are valleys in the Mexican territory of California that grow some of the finest grapes in the world. Thomas, that's the other side of the continent, and you claim to be an anti-imperialist. You'd really betray your principles for a decent bottle of wine? (laughs) Oh, silly Sally. If I allowed you to taste wine, you'd understand. (laughs) Oh, my dear, what would I do without you? Set me free and find out. Sure. Right after I have another glass of that sauerkraut juice. Ugh.
one of the things I do want to um, mention about wine is fortified wine. And I, I see some eyes like, what do you mean? Fortified, fortified with what? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it's fortified with Flintstone vitamins. Mm, mm. Calcium. Before I was a uh, urban and environmental historian of the post-war era, post-World War II era, um, I studied revolutionary era Boston. And let me tell you, all of those guys, John Hancock, Sam Adams, John Adams, uh, James Otis, all of those guys were drinking Madeira like nobody's business. And let me tell y'all, second, Madeira is amazing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, some of those, uh, the port. And actually, I know, uh, interestingly enough, a lot of uh, churches that use real wine and communion actually do use port because it keeps. Yeah. But I mean, uh, sherry and Madeira, oh, I mean, they can just, I mean, they can be, I don't like stuff that's heavily sweet. But if you get dry versions of those, they are just, oh, so good. Yeah. If you taste one, you totally understand like, oh yeah, these guys thought they could start a revolution against the world's most <laughs> amazing power for sure. Madeira is Portuguese, is it not? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And there are, um, I really appreciate Lainey mentioning that there are different varieties of of Madeira. So for instance, like the South Carolina and the Georgia versions are really dry. The first one that I ever had is the, the Boston variety again, because that's what I, the era that I was studying and it is very sweet, but in like a, a very kind of savory, warm kind of way. Um, I'm a big fan. We actually have a fairly rich history of wine, wines and wine lovers with colonial times. And we clearly have a, in a much more modern era, sort of from Kennedy on, give or take a Carter and a, and a give or take a Carter and a, and a, and a Clinton and all of that. What happened? Anything happened in between? Buchanan. What a. He was the <laughs> only, on. pre, the only uh, president between Jefferson and uh, let's take it out. Let's take it all the way to Nixon or no, well, maybe Kennedy with a, who preferred wine because you know Buchanan was uh, Buchanan was aspirationally effete, and I think that might have been part of his uh, might have been part of the appeal to him. He had wine suppliers. He had wine parties in the White House. Wine parties. Wine parties. <laughs> this is is this code? Very. very... <laughs> <Is> Buchanan. <laughs> I was going to say uh, the exact opposite of Andrew Jackson's uh, inaugural party, which was drink anything but wine and then eat cheese. Yep. And Take whatever you want from window. the White House. It belongs to the people again or whatever. <laughs> Just steal. You wish to see me, Mr. Buchanan? Have a seat, Malbec. I, I need to talk to you about size. My size doesn't satisfy you, Mr. Buchanan? Malbec... I'm a gay man, and so are all the friends I hosted in my chambers last night. And you know, men of frolics have a certain obsession with, with size. But they all seem satisfied with me. In fact, some swallowed instead of spitting, as is customary. Ah, well, that's how they act in front of you, Malbec. But, but once they were out of the room, uh, <clears throat> that's how they acted in front of you, Malbec. But uh, once you were out of the room, they made snide remarks. You know how catty and gossipy us jovial fellows can be. 
But, sir, I can hardly do anything about size. Are you quite certain, Malbec? In my travels, I've heard of places in Europe uh, that make them bigger. But would you pay for it, Mr. Buchanan? Wouldn't be the first time I've paid for it. So, it's settled. As my personal wine merchant, you'll never provide small wine bottles for a tasting again. You can count on it, sir. I should hope so. I can't bring gaiety to the presidency without enough wine to spark bright and cheerful conversations. He's new. Have you given him a name yet? Oh, not yet. Uh, But once I ungag him, I'm thinking of calling him John Brown. Because that body's hung. Mm. Um... Yes. Anyway, I'll close the door on my way out. So, actually, if I can go back to my original question, I'm wondering, did I make a bad presumption? I mean, I made the presumption that, oh, the common, you know, the, the, the common folk didn't drink wine at least at the beginning, at least at the during colonial times, or like say the eighteenth, nineteenth century, is that a true perception? Is that true? Am I am I wrong on that assumption? I don't know so much about the eighteenth century, um, but I know in the nineteenth century, um, wine drinking was very common, especially mm-hmm. among recent immigrants to mm-hmm. the United States, um, and actually some. Uh, historians argue that um, wine and other alcoholic beverages were a great gateway for immigrant groups to kind of establish their own um, businesses, especially, Mm -hmm. right, uh, Germans with beer halls and Mm -hmm. they would have served wine as well. Um, But um, yeah, there's a great book out there. It's on the shelf um, if we're doing Chelsea's book club. Chelsea's Book Club. Um, It's called Urban Appetites by Cindy Lobel. It's about, uh, not just about wine, but uh, foodways in the 19th century in New York. But it's a a great book. And the ultimate- I'm assuming there was also a racial aspect to it. Not to get overly complicated, right? But the the social construct of whiteness, right? Even, Even though immigrants- might be perceived as having white skin, they had not achieved cultural or social whiteness yet. Not and until so, Jello had been invented. And so um, there's uh, so many good books about whiteness as a social construct. Um, Wages of Whiteness uh, and Working for Whiteness by Rodiger. Um, oh gosh, I can't think of Matthew. But Jacob again, you would, think, you would think in a very stereotypical way, wine would fit into a a social construct of being white. Well, it? but we've we've hit on something that I think is at the root of the biggest fears in the first half of the 19th century, which is Catholic invasion, mm-hmm. uh, specifically by Italians, French, and to a lesser extent, Germans. I mean, there is a big Catholic population. They're also associated the with Irish. Protestantism. The Irish, well, well, yeah, that's true. I associate then- them less with wine, but definitely with Catholicism. <laughs> and I think, as we mentioned earlier, it's like religious orders were growing grapes if I'm yeah. a fearful Protestant who's the 1840s equivalent of QAnon, I'm looking at a conspiracy here. <laughs> so, Laney, uh, what's the relation between some of the bigger Protestants? I don't want to say sex, but some of the bigger Protestant faiths in the United States, like Methodism. I was going to say some of the, the bigger faith. Protestants with Adam and Taft, but I'm bummed. Well, you know, a lot of, in a lot of, not all, certainly by any means, and the Episcopalians, you know, they're in their own place. So are the Lutherans. 
um, and even the Presbyterians, but certainly the Methodists that the, the holiness traditions um, uh, would, you know, were very anti-alcohol. Uh, and uh, one of the more interesting things is you'll see this from various, it's some fundamentalist, um, but Pentecostal and holiness denominations, um, apologetic tracts making the argument that Jesus never turned water into alcohol, alcoholic wine, but it was turned into grape juice. <laughs> and there's a, cause it was new wine. Um, that was and, William Jennings Bryan's idea, obviously. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> so and, a whole bunch of Capri Suns. <laughs> but if you look at, um, well, we kind of have to talk about the temperance movement and prohibition uh -huh. that sort of impact our wine drinking for a number of years. Well, was yep. it wine or, or the hard or the hard stuff? Like I said, because I know all there was a, yeah, all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Because we know there was so much whiskey, particularly in the late 19th century, that that, I mean, just and to say nothing of lots of American presidents drinking all sorts of stuff during that era. Well, and I think the, you know, one, we have talked about prohibition and it's kind of like social betterment uh, aspects in previous episodes. So listen to those episodes, listeners. Um, <laughs> but I do want to raise the point that a lot of temperance laws, especially those that were locally passed before the national prohibition law, those were very um, anti-immigrant laws as well, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. so you have um, establishments that are owned by German immigrants, Italian immigrants. In the book that I mentioned earlier, there's um, a story about um, a Chinese grocer who starts selling Chinese wine, and that is not uh, well received by the neighborhood. That Irish he, pubs, uh, of course. Right, and so um, a lot of those um, and like temperance laws do have this kind of flavor of anti-immigrant sentiment as well. Yeah. So. Just so a question, though, to Chelsea, Sandy, Gina, Sylvia Lane. Um, wasn't there also a progressive, a socially liberal component to the temperance movement? Or was it all just a sort of, re re or was it all reactionary? I don't believe it was, was it? No, I mean, right. And we've talked about this when we talked about, uh, I think, the Teddy Roosevelt episode, and we talked about progressivism more generally, right? The, the major point behind progressivism is to make America and to make um, Americans better people, right? So there is a, a kind Glad of... Glad you use the word better instead of a different word close to that. Uh, yeah. Um, and, and so there is this kind of... Um, social good behind it, but right, defining that better American um, is really subjective and usually means a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant American as well, right? And so that's where it gets kind of ugly. I mean, and there was a good reason for the idea of tamping down our, you know, over consumption of alcohol alcoholism was a big problem mm -hmm. and so but instead of having social you know services to help people they just like let's just ban the things just sort of like drugs and marijuana laws it really yeah, those laws always work just, yeah, always 
Yeah. So many outside groups glommed on to the idea of, well, we can get through temperance because it will keep the immigrants out, or we could get through temperance because we already have black people voting. We don't want them having the vote and alcohol. Um, well, and, yeah, I mean, it, exactly. And it, um, you know, Sandy, I think you hit on a point that I did not make, but right. We also have to remember that temperance is a predominantly middle-class issue um, that is thrust upon a working class public, um, right? These are the folks who are um, getting fined uh, under temperance mm-hmm. laws, not the elites who are still continuing to drink <laughs> profusely throughout prohibition. Absolutely. Um, and so it is It is a, a class issue too. Who, who can afford a wine cellar? Living in a tenement a tenement building, well, then it's a lot, you know, not, not more difficult to conceal what's going on. But if you live in a private household, particularly one that has a cellar in it, and the police, you know, are, are not inclined to to enter that, or you know, you can get away with all kinds of things while presenting a very different face yeah. to the public. And curiously enough, uh, my studio here in Chicago is in an old building um, in, in, the, in kind of the, the, the meatpacking district. And the um, studio where I have my radio station was actually a uh, wine cellar uh, that was uh, put to use during prohibition. Ooh. It was actually meant to, to store nefarious and illegal booze. So we were making good progress, say, through the 1920s. You know, I think that they're, they think that it was happening, um, certainly. And then, of course, it became very difficult. I mean, there, there are people who will continue to make wine for religious purposes. And I believe there, I believe that households could sometimes make a certain amount of wine. And we all know how that works. Um, but, uh, it, it, you know, I, I know in, um, in the Republic of Iran, for example, it's an Islamic Republic, alcohol is not allowed, but Jews and Christians can make their own wine for religious purposes, thus sometimes inflating the number of Jews and Christians living uh, in, in Iran. And I'm sure not that- Not to mention the, creating new new uh, holidays where, hey, we have to celebrate. Like, yeah, you know, <laughs> um, but uh, I, you know, I'm quite sure that that was probably happening here. And I do know that it was difficult for the California one and at post prohibition, you, you know, you had folks who were going in there and just trying to figure out how to get these you know, vines back in order. There had really been that lost craft. And that's why it took uh, the U.S. Uh, a good long while to catch up again because of what had happened to the wine industry uh, during prohibition. So it's interesting. We talk. We've talked a lot about the colonial times and their, you know, sort of the founding fathers' love of wine. And we've also talked about our modern presidents. Um, you know, one guy we also one guy we haven't touched on is Kennedy. Who, I mean, if you want to talk about a presidency that really wanted to bring some snootiness and regality to the White House, there it is. Um, and I, as as I've talked to everybody here, my favorite bit about Kennedy was he apparently developed a love of champagne thanks to a friendship with ian fleming interesting of all yeah to the well, point there is where, something yeah okay I gotta, yeah, I there, there, yeah. There, there certainly is because yes, uh, yes girls they, um, yeah, to the, well uh the the world premiere or the american premiere of dr no was in the white house 
as a personal favor. We've had worse premieres in the White House. Let's, That's true. I, yeah, and we know which one I'm talking about. So, <laughs> Mr. President, there's a Mr. Ian Fleming here to see you. Ah, magnificent! Uh, please send him in, Evelyn. Right away, sir. Mr. Kennedy. Mr. Fleming. I mean, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the appointment, John. Oh, the Dom Perignon you sent was magnificent. I enjoyed it with my wife last night. Delightful. So, uh, what brings you here today? I wanted to deliver a second bottle of Dom. A second? Why so generous? Yes, well, this is a bottle of Dom 53. I understand a special friend of yours enjoys this particular vintage. Well, if a friend of mine enjoys it, why don't you just send it yourself? Because I was hoping you could deliver it as part of a special favour to me. You know Dr. No is just about ready to be filmed. Oh, indeed I do. As a fan of your novels, I cannot wait to see James Bond on the big screen. And I understand you are also an acquaintance of Marilyn Monroe? Perhaps. What does this have to do with champagne, Ian? John, we are running into a lot of doubters about whether a modern-day spy movie with an unknown Scottish actor playing him will have box office appeal. Having a marketable and, if I may say, sexy actress on the marquee may calm that fear. With your Hollywood friends and your cachet, I was hoping you would be able to, shall we say, put in a good word for her with my producers, using this bottle of Dom as an enticement? That seems rather inappropriate. John, Miss Monroe would fit Dr. No perfectly. Especially with the bikini my costumers have in mind for her. You are acting as if the entire matter is one of your uh, capers. Mr. President, and you are the president, are you aware of the dalliances that your Marilyn has been a party to recently? Mr. Fleming, what Miss Monroe does when she's not with me is none of my concern. Then perhaps it should be, given how easily people like the Soviets or the, the Mafia could use that information to blackmail you. Uh, are you all right? Damn it, I want Marilyn Monroe in that role! Did you just pull a knife out of your umbrella, Ian? You call your Hollywood friends and make them hire Monroe for me, or I tell them everything! Oh, brother. Now! Look at what you did to Abraham Lincoln's portrait. Oh, Ian, this has gone too far. You just hit me with the bottle of Dom. I'd prefer 55 Dom Perignon anyway. Now please, Ian, get a hold of yourself. I have no sway over what Marilyn does on the screen. And uh, besides, you're better off using unknown starlets as Bond girls. Let James Bond be the hero. I thought Sean Connery was an inspired choice. You think so? Oh, he was brusquely charming in Darby O'Gill and the Little People. I think you will be a memorable Bond. Mr. President, your wife wishes to see you. Oh, dear. Perhaps you are right. Tell you what, Ian, I'll, uh, I, I can try to get Marilyn to the premiere of your new movie, and I will even have the premiere uh, here at the White House to add to the glamour. I would like that, Mr. Kennedy. I apologize for my rashness and the damage. <laughs> I'm used to it with Marilyn. Your wife, Mr. President. Uh, thank you, Evelyn. Ian, uh, you should leave through the garden. A Secret Service agent will accompany you. And I'll be keeping the dom. Yes, I suppose that's only right. I am sorry, John. Well, we can't all be like Bond. Ta.
Uh, uh, you can uh, send Jackie in now, Evelyn. Yes, Mr. President. Jackie, how are the children? Two handfuls, even with the maids. What is this? Oh, oh, uh, John Pignon, 53. A uh, gift from the British uh, consulate. Two in two days? I would love a glass. Oh, uh, yes, uh, indeed. Surviving colic deserves a reward. Glasses are over there. What happened to Abe's portrait? Oh, I need to watch John John a little bit more when he plays with his model airplane. Anyway, let's drink. What is that tune? Oh, just something popped in my head. Seems dangerous, doesn't it? Dangerous. Indeed. One thing I remember about President Kennedy is uh, Jackie Kennedy's social secretary. Secretary was Letitia Baldridge, who came from a worthy family in the area, but she did not understand that alcohol was never served on the White House on Sundays. And apparently there had been some kind of an event and she had set up a bar and she was taken aside by President Kennedy and said, look, you don't ever serve alcohol in the White House on Sundays. What about other parts of the grounds? I, I, I don't know, but it was there was there was a there was a, a blue law essentially or, or a blue oh, rule. I guess really that, oh. that that is what that's what the story that I heard about Letitia Baldridge is that you know she was very embarrassed because she served. The DC uh, was sort of dry, or they had dram laws in DC. I think I, no, I don't think it was. I was when I was saying I'm being facetious here. Ah, it was more like uh, a rule for the White House <laughs> um, that 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 was it was considered to be improper. It's a matter it. of propriety. Okay. So try which so okay so Obama's were big Obama was big on American wine uh, Nixon Reagan um, Gerald Ford y'all keep Gerald Ford Gerald oh, Ford y'all okay okay Gerald Ford the Michigander here is like don't forget Jerry <laughs> so, Ooh, I, someone I, was the Gerald Ford American scholar of history scholar of American history at Albion College. Who would that be on this panel? <laughs> Definitely not me. Did not also, attend the Gerald Ford Institute. At the only you, does that mean you spent four years studying one year? <laughs> Offense to Gerald Ford. No, I'm kidding. He's all right. He's. We should really go after Nixon if we're going to go after anybody. I think Honestly, the, the Ford Wine Association is not a good one if you think of Betty. Yeah, Ooh. I believe she was fond of Chablis, but maybe I'm wrong about that. <laughs> and Chablis is its own. It's its own. Uh, there's a lot of wines that are called Chablis uh, that come out of California, but Chablis is actually very specific in France. Um, it's made in a, in, in, in a specific region uh, in, in the Burgundy area, and it is usually, not always, but it's usually aged in stainless steel. It is very crisp, uh, very distinctive, one of my favorites. Um, but in the U.S., and there's been this kind of back and forth between the two countries, um, because Chablis will just be apl- applied to any kind of a light white wine and sold in, in gallon jugs. <laughs> 
Which um, is exactly how Midwesterners like it. Apparently. <laughs> and, and God bless America for that. Ah, the French champagne, often regarded for its excellency. There is a California champagne by Paul Masson, inspired by that same French excellence. It's fermented in the bottle like all... Cut! Damn it, Ronnie, I thought you were an actor. Exactly, Mr. Nixon, I was an actor, and now I'm governor. (laughs) Governor Ronald Reagan. Life's funny that way. (laughs) You're delivering the lines flat. There's nothing inspired here. We may as well have traded Orson Welles a jar of grain alcohol to do this advertisement. How are we going to promote California champagne? Now that's the problem, Dick. It's all hooey. There's no such thing as California champagne. Champagne comes from the Champagne region of France. Otherwise, it's just a sparkling white wine. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, and I once debated Jack Kennedy. Boston troglodyte. We agreed we would do anything in our power to sell California wine. Is this like when you and Joe McCarthy rounded up all those reds? Oh, it's not just the reds. Napa Valley makes a wide selection of whites and even rosés, if you can stand that nonsense. It's just hard to talk about the taste of a wine I've never tasted before. Uh, Maybe if I had just a glass. Listen, Bob, I'm going to tell you what I told Joe McCarthy about drinking on the job. Yes! Damn it, Dick, what is this swill? Did you swap those bottles with Boone Farm? Well, yes, I suppose you caught me. But I have to save the good bottles. I'm on a fixed income, man. The only graft I've ever taken is that damn dog, Checkers. And he laps up three bottles of Merlot a day. Mr. Nixon, pour out this will. All right. Rolling. Action. Yeah. The French champagne, often regarded for his excellency, is a California champagne that's very good. Cut! How much did you quaff, Ronnie? Uh, just a glass. But I, I filled it three or four times. Drink some water. Let's go in. Well, hey, I, I did it. I did it. I did it perfect that time. You're slurring like Judy Garland after 1 p.m. Now reset. Still rolling. Action. Oh, we know a field in Napa where Mrs. Buckley lives. Every July. Wrong script, dingbat! Are you even paying attention? Once is a prank. I said Humphrey Bogart's dressing room on fire. Uh, never mind. I'll see if I can get Bonzo to do it. Grace Kelly took nuclear secrets to Monica. Jesus, man, pull yourself together. Maybe I should stop recording my friends. Nah! And wine is another way for Nixon to cheat people because he would substitute, he would put cheap wine in, he would empty the expensive wine bottles and put cheap wine in it to fool his guests. Which is so Nixonian. So, yes. So Nixonian. Yeah. You can oh, actually Nixon. picture him doing this. Yeah, yes. I, yeah. I can actually see it. it it's, it's so yeah. vivid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
It's what they call a. It's why they called it a dick move. Oh, oh. my goodness. And it does lead into the Cal- California. And of course, in that era, you have the two California presidents, uh, Nixon and Reagan. And Reagan. Because both of them at the time were really pushing american wines california wines when they were serving the reagan story i mean and there's again personally there's not a lot about reagan i like but i understand from what i have read he could have been a sommelier and he was like for example when he signed on to be the spokesperson for ge they built him a wine cellar in his home and that was in the 50s and apparently and he and from everything i read his palate was just dead on he would personally create the wine selections in the white house and like you said 76 in the 80s like when we grew up that's kind of the moment where american wines weren't being apologetic toward the french like it wasn't just the gallo brothers or uh, mad dog or boone's farm your bird <laughs> Welcome to Fine Taste Wines. I'm Jordan. Hi, I'm Marissa. I just moved into the neighborhood with my husband, Gordon. Oh, you're coming in at the right time. All these old buildings being remodeled for a new generation right in the middle of the city. Oh, yeah. 1986 is going to be a very good year. Totally. And we just bought a wine cellar. You bought a wine cellar? I mean, like a huge refrigerator where you could put wine. We're putting it in the basement. A wine cellar. Oh, uh, got it. So I need wine. And Fine Taste Wines is a great place to fill your wine cellar. What do you recommend? What do you like? Well, we both seem to be drinking, like, red wines. I'm not going to work with that. I have some new Cabernets from California that I think would be a great start to any wine collection. Really? California? Sure, Napa Valley. Do you have any French wines? See, my husband works with Goldman Sachs, so occasionally we have to, like, look rich. And you want to impress all the new neighbors, right? Yeah, I mean, all these new young professionals making this urban area so much cleaner and nicer for everyone. You have to look the part. True enough. We're having a reception after going to the new gallery down the street next week, so... Say la vie, French wine. I have no problem with French wines, but uh, let me see if I can sell you on something else. Here are three outstanding cabs. Mondavi, Inglenook, and uh, Bolio Vineyards. Oh, that last one sounds French. You know, it uh, used to be France was the only country people thought of when they thought of buying the best wine in the world. But in the last few years, it's all changed. Now, California wines are considered at least as good, if not sometimes better, than any European vintages. U.S.A. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Don Mellencamp. And all the vineyards that made these wines are favorites of the White House. You mean like Betty Ford? Well, no, I mean this White House. This White House? The White House with Ronald Reagan in it. Mm-hmm. Oh. My. God. And I know some people may not like this president. Like but- the gallery down the street. They just ended some depressing exhibit about 
photos of starving kids in the middle of America, Managua, something, something. Yeah, but uh, one thing Reagan has always done is to promote California wines around the world. He's always been a wine connoisseur. Who knew? He had a wine cooler built in his home in the 1960s when he was spokesman for General Electric. So now I have something in common with Ronald Reagan by buying his wines. Right? My husband will love that. So will all his Goldman Sachs buddies. I kind of thought so. I'll take one case of each of them. Excellent. And when you talk to your Democratic friends, tell them about the blind taste test in 1976, when French wine tasters all picked California wines over French wines. That was when Gerald Ford was president. Betty Ford. Yep. Wow, I didn't realize politics covered, like, everything. Oh, the world moves in strange ways. If you like those, I can set you up with some white wines to balance your new wine cooler out. Wines that Reagan recommended? We'll never tell. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll get my assistant to load the wines in your car. And I'll come back for the whites next week. Ta! Ta! More whites coming in all the time. Oh, God, if I could just say no to yuppies. But their money is such a sweet vintage. How do you feel about Virginia wines, like from the Trump winery? Okay, I can tell you, I, I can't speak about the Trump winery. What I can say is when President Obama was inaugurated, uh, they served Virginia wines. And uh, as a matter of fact, I got a chance to actually try these wines. Barber, Barbersville Vineyard, Vineyards, uh, there was a, a Cab Franc and a uh, Bordeaux blend. And those were served at, at you know, at, uh, at the inauguration. And because it was very important to the Obamas uh, to have American, to have American wines. And I, 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 one of my, it's a now defunct wine bar in the city, but they had an Obama burger on the menu <laughs> and they would serve, um, they would serve the Cobb Franc uh, with the Obama burgers. It was absolutely fantastic. Um, he also set up an international incident uh, when they served at Corbell sparkling wine rather than French champagne. And the French became very angry about that. I can also tell you that I spent some time living in Southern Oregon, which was wine country. I mean, everywhere you turn in that area, you're going to find a little vineyard somewhere. And I was talking to some employees at one of the local vineyards and they told me that one day uh, the White House called and asked for a case of one of their wines and the whole place was set into a complete dither. <laughs> <laughs> trying to put together uh, a case of wine to ship off to the White House. But the Obamas were very pro-American wines, and, and actually to go with a Virginia wine was really something. Hi, I'm Eric Trump, president of Trump Winery. Welcome, wine club enthusiasts, to our monthly podcast, Trump Terroir. I'm joined by our general manager, Carrie. I understand we have a wine writer with us today. That's right, Eric, and not just any wine writer. Oh, is it one of the reviewers who have given Trump wineries such high ratings and wine enthusiast or wine spectator? Actually, we are joined today by Kelly Tycho. 
Hiya! You might be familiar with my work for USA Today. I got the scoop on IHOP branching out into wine and beer, and I am always the first one to know about what will be in Aldi's wine advent calendar. Right. Uh, well, a- anyway, we have appeared and been highly rated, too, in some serious publications, such as Bon Appetit and Sevour. <laughs> yes, well, you are all about the name dropping, aren't you, Eric? Same last name as a real estate mogul president. Uh, uh, what's it a name? <laughs> the, the only thing that I have in common with my father is that neither of us relied on our fathers for our success in real estate. Or wine. Now you'll forget all about the name. Once you taste our master winemaker's newest creations. Now, Eric, I am sure our wine club members use their Make American Wine Great Again corkscrews with pride. When people hear Trump, they know what they're getting. Uh, Carrie, uh, why don't you tell Kelly what she's getting? First, I thought we would try the Modi Giuliani. Excuse me? Give this a whirl, Kelly. Mm. It starts out so dignified. There's almost an ashy tone to it Mm. but then it kind of goes crazy on the palate Mm -hmm. we make that with our famous four seasons grape a pennsylvania cultivar Uh, that one has graced the finest tables in manhattan and has been served in dc have a few charlottesville peanuts to cleanse your palate carrie while i pour taster number two eric why don't you tell our listeners a bit of the history of this place Oh, sure. Uh, we are the largest winery on the East Coast. Wait, aren't and... you the only winery on the East Coast? No, 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 no. We're the best known, of course, and justifiably. Hmm? Trump winery occupies some of the most spectacular real estate anywhere in the world. Well, you and your family are all about real estate. Isn't it situated on a former plantation? Yeah, how's that second wine coming, Carrie? We're all set. Here you are, Kelly, our Muller Low. What did you call that? Mm, interesting. The initial tasting notes seems like there might not be much to talk about, but oh, then kapow, it really sneaks up on you. Right. It takes forever to age, but we will sell no wine before it's done its time. I think the phrase is um, copyrighted. Now, how about we go total top shelf? What would you say to a Chateau Neuf de Papadopoulos? Uh, do I know? Oh, my God. How did you get a Rhone Valley varietal out of France? Believe it or not, by way of Russia. You see, what happened? Was... I think that, that's enough backstory. Uh, let's, let's try some whites. <laughs> Great idea, Eric. Why don't we shift to a heavy hitter with our Bannon loose? This big boy is required to have an alcohol content of 15%. Goodness, I might need a wall to lean on after I sample this. The wall? (laughs) Ooh, let's not go buck wild there, Carrie. Okay, how about we downshift to something more lightweight with a Pompeo Grigio? Uh, He was lightweight, all right. Ooh, it's so airy. Breezy, even. We're going to float you away on bubbles for our big finish. Ta-da! This is my pride and joy, our Quid Prosecco. What have I done to deserve this? Mm, Well, if you thought that plying me with this stuff was going to get a good review out of me, you were right. I'm going to give Trump Winery five full wine emojis for today's flight. Thank you, uh, Carrie and Kelly. That's all we have time for. Uh, Tune in next time when winemaker Jonathan Wheeler will debut the new Blanc de Blancs. Yes, we're planning to call that one White Power. Oh, for (laughs) f***.
sake. So wine is status symbol. Wine is cultural symbol. Wine is uh, economic symbol. Wine, because it's just darn tasty. Um, any closing thoughts either to Chelsea or Lainey? Particularly, we're sort of, as we move on and we're sort of hopefully, you know, depending on when people are listening, maybe you'll be doing it without face masks and such. We know President Biden's more of an ice cream guy than a liquor guy for the most part, but it does feel like wines and liquor drinking in some ways has sort of reestablished itself as sort of a status symbol and maybe a symbol of some ascendant culture, but symbolic of America in some way? I would say that I mean, the, the resurgence uh, may have to do with the resurgence of, with the, the surge of foodie culture. Mm-hmm. And that I think that we, we eat differently and food and wine do go together beautifully. They complement each other. They each taste better when, when well paired. And so that, that may be what we're also seeing here. Um, I have some other darker thoughts on the issue, um, <laughs> namely the idea that if people's income is just going down and their purchasing power is lowered, and if buying a home is out of reach, but buying a $40 bottle of wine is within reach, that may be a form of gratification, but that's just speculation on my part. I don't know you know, it's funny though, Lainey, I was, I was actually going to say the same thing. I think um, one of the reasons we're seeing a resurgence in craft, especially craft liquor, craft beer, and um, wine culture is this kind of aspirational middle classness. Mm-hmm. We live in an era of great economic stratification, um, a, in a sh- rapidly shrinking middle class. Mm-hmm. Most of us would now either qualify ourselves as um, upper class elites or lower middle class working class um, incomes. Uh, we wouldn't like like to think of ourselves that way, but economically, that's what we are. Economically, yeah, yeah. yeah. High levels of debt. Um, exactly. High levels of debt. Uh, there's a real precariat, I guess I would say, in this culture, of, including among those who have college educations, university of educations. And um, there might be some, some way, some way of clinging to something is I have a $5 craft beer rather than a $2 PBR, unless you were a hipster 20 years ago. Yeah. So that's, I, I think that's one of the reasons we see it um, is that, that sort of grasping on to, well, we can't buy a new car. Um, we can't afford to buy a house. We can't afford to have children right now, right? All of these trappings of the traditional American dream, but we can't afford to buy a $30 bottle of wine, you know, once a week. And so I, th- I think it, it, you know, we started this conversation talking about how wine was an aspirational beverage. And I, well, I think it has democratized knowledge about wine has democratized a little bit. I think it still very much is an aspirational beverage. Hence, its value to some presidents sometimes, unless they just happen to like wine, and there's nothing wrong with that. Then those of us who have a glass, and that includes those of you who are listeners, because we certainly recommend one, we should raise a glass. Thank you, Lainey. Thank you, Chelsea. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, presidents. Thank you, Thomas Jefferson.
DB Comedy presents The Electables. This bonus episode was produced, written, and performed by Gina Bacola, Sandy Bikowski, Joseph Fedorko, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the Electables, visit DB Comedy's host page on simplecast.com. Follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy or Democracy Burlesque, and listen to us on the Trident Network and on World Perspectives Radio Chicago, streaming at 99perspectives.tv and 365live.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe, and don't forget to like. <laughs>